what makes a good friend? Is it an affinity for the same things? A common interest? Maybe having more mutual friends makes you a better friend. Is a good friend only made through time spent together? What kinds of things do you think make a better friend? If you're joining us live online, you can comment in the chat what kinds of things you think make a better friend. As a church, one of our values is courageous community. And a little over a year ago, Pastor Dave, myself, I believe Mel was a part of it too, we met and we tried to add some metrics to our church values. These aren't really measurable metrics, but rather ideas to help describe what it might look like to grow in these areas. Right? It would help us uh, visualize a sense of progression. And so we talked about this in terms of this value of courageous community. Uh, we started you know, at the basics. Uh, I have somebody at church who knows my name and I know their name. Really basic, but it's just that idea of having a relationship. And that's really easy now as we have the chat next to, our names next to us in the chat, right? Uh, a step up from that might be, oh, I have a group of friends or a group of people at church that I chat with and I, I know about. Uh, next from there, I have a group of people I regularly connect with in a church as well as outside of church. It's this idea of being involved with each other's lives. And our, our peak idea of courageous community was I have a 3 a.m. friend at church. And you might be asking, David, what's a 3 a.m. friend? You can't just throw out a phrase you made. Well, I'm glad you asked. A 3 a.m. friend is somebody that you can call at 3 a.m. when you are in a crisis. Right? A 3 a.m. friend is the person you call when your significant other is having heart palpitations and you need to rush to the hospital, but you need someone to come stay with your kids. The 3 a.m. friend is the person you call when a pipe bursts in your apartment and you need to start sorting and clearing through your stuff and see what you can salvage and start evaluating the damage. A 3 a.m. friend is the person you call in the middle of the night when your car breaks down halfway between Edmonton and Leduc and you need a lift. Right, the 3 a.m. friend is a friend who's there for you no matter how inconvenient the circumstances, no matter the work it will take to support you, and no matter what it costs them to support you. The 3 a.m. friend is a better friend than how many of us often think about friends. Right? I have a, a modest 295 Facebook friends I checked this morning, uh, but only two or three people that I might consider true friends, 3 a.m. type friends. And today we don't want to talk about what it means to have a better friend. We had a sermon in the fall called It's Connection That Counts, and we talked about six type of people you need in your life to support you and help you grow. But today we kind of want to flip that. We want to talk about what it means to be a better friend. Because the best way to gain a better friend is by being a better friend. So let's set the scene. The narrative of Saul and David is often described as an X. Right? The larger story of 1 Samuel consists of Saul becoming king, reigning over Israel, and as we begun to see, his descent from the throne. And at the same time as this is happening, we see the beginning of David's reign. Right? He's anointed as king, he's coming into power as a military commander, and even as David becomes a fugitive, we still see him amassing in popularity from the people in the kingdom. Next week, we'll continue to explore this X and see it come to fruition as David ascends the throne and as Saul is ultimately cast aside. But today, we aren't following the timeline and the narrative of the X. We're looking in some ways at the whole narrative, not for a trend or a storyline or a plot beat but to explore the interplay between two characters, to examine the relationship between Jonathan and David, a story of an extraordinary friendship. 
Now, up to this point in our sermon series, we've seen Jonathan a few times, but he actually comes onto the scene three chapters before David. In fact, he's around before chapter 16, where we started out our Not Be Shaken series. So if you turn with me in 1 Samuel 13, we'll begin to dive into the text of the Bible. Throughout 1 Samuel, we've seen the Israelites facing a formidable enemy, the Philistines. The Philistines were equipped with shields and armor and spears and javelins. And to add to Israel's predicament, the Philistines had captured every blacksmith they possibly could. And so the Israelites couldn't even really equip themselves for battle. The problem became so big that we read in chapter 13, verse 20, so all of Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. Israel can't even sharpen their own iron tools, much less craft their own weapons of war. And so we read in 13, verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. And Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. And Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and they camped at Michmash, east of Beth Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Here's the first mention of Jonathan. We see that he leads a group of the Israelites into battle against a Philistine outpost. Jonathan is a man who can lead. He has military aptitude, and because of his actions, the Philistines are momentarily pushed back. And I love the language in chapter 13, verse 4. Uh, in some translations it read, Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. Uh, other translations render it, uh, Israel has become a stench to the Philistines, or odious to the Philistines. And the Hebrew term used here is best translated as a strong and disgusting stench. I like that picture, right? The Israelites are not just an annoyance or a bad whiff of scent. I think of it kind of like a skunk spray. They're an annoyance that is pervasive and lingers. They're such an annoyance, they're such a hindrance that the Philistines rally their forces together and the Israelites flee and hide. But as we head into chapter 14, they begin to regroup. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side but he did not tell his father. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sena. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I am with your heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then. We will cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait here until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. 
So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. So here we, we get into some of the excitement. Jonathan, identified now as the son of Saul, and his armor bearer begin to trek towards the Philistine outpost. They start by walking through a narrow pass between two steep cliffs. The cliff on one side was called Bozes. Bozes means slippery or shining. I picture a cliff where water has run down and worn the surface smooth. There'd be minimal grip to climb up. And on the other side, the cliff called Senna, meaning thorny, perhaps covered in thorny plants or brushes like thistles. And as Jonathan and his armor bearer approach the Philistine garrison, Jonathan speaks to his armor bearer. If the Philistines invite us up, then we know what the Lord has given them into our hand. Jonathan demonstrates his heart for the Lord. And lo and behold, as they reach the garrison, the Philistines mockingly call them up to the garrison. Jonathan, knowing that this means the battle is theirs, begins to climb. They climb hand over foot up the steep cliff face. They're exposed and they're vulnerable to attack. But the overconfident Philistines make no attempt to stop them. And when they finally reach the garrison, they spring into attack. The two of them kill 20 Philistines. And from the chaos that is caused here, the Philistine line breaks and Israel is able to push back against their enemies. And while the military victory here is important, I think much of the interest in this passage actually comes out of Jonathan's words to his armor bearer. And they reveal his character and his commitment. Right? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Gene Getz, summarizing the story, writes, Before Jonathan ever knew about David's personal relationship with God, he also believed the battle is the Lord's. He, too, had a vital relationship with God. But Jonathan not only demonstrates a heart after God's, he also demonstrates strength in battle and military leadership. Jonathan, in many ways, represents the best parts of both Saul and David. Right? Jonathan had the bloodline of the king, but he also has a heart for God. He has leadership and might that the people want and why they chose Saul, but he seeks God before any battle. Right? Jonathan probably would have had an easier time claiming the throne after Saul than any other person. And that's what makes the rest of the story so incredible. You see, Jonathan will give up his titles. He'll make sacrifices to his social status. And he will continually and intentionally humble himself to honor God and to honor the covenant friendship that he has with David. And throughout David and Jonathan's friendship, we see three characteristics embodied that make them a better friend. And each of these characteristics is something that we can live out so that we too can become the better friend. So three characteristics of a better friend. Uh, number one, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. A better friend honors one another above themselves. The language here I'm taking out of Romans chapter 12, verse 10, where it says, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. 
right? But the idea here is completely exemplified in the story of David and Jonathan. Following the battle between David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, David is brought by Abner to Saul, and Saul invites David to join his household as the champion of Israel. And it is here where we first read of David and Jonathan meeting. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him, and they did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Talk about fast friends. In this first verse where we see Jonathan and David together, we're told that Jonathan became one in spirit with David. Gene Getz talks about uh, the common factor in their relationship being how they both had hearts to seek after God. Right, and while most friendships begin because of some sort of shared interest, this quickly progresses beyond that. One of, the, one of my closest friends, we met within a first, the first few days of us starting college. Uh, I saw him kind of sitting on the other side of the room. He had a, a Star Wars tattoo on his arm. Uh, he was wearing a Star Wars shirt. And I was like, yeah, I like that guy. Right, he's cool enough to have a tattoo, but he's publicly nerdy enough to wear a Star Wars shirt. Right, I found my people. I found my person. But like David and Jonathan, our, our friendship didn't stay there, right? It, our friendship became about more than our shared interest in Star Wars. In verse 3, we're, we read that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. This covenant was a solemn promise with David that bound the parties, right? Jonathan loved David so strongly that merely expressing friendship was not enough. And Jonathan continues to demonstrate humility in giving up his royal robe, right? He gives up his armor, his tunic, his sword, his belt, his bow. Jonathan is the crown prince of Israel. And by all appearances, David is more of a threat to Jonathan than he is to Saul. Saul Saul's the king, but Jonathan is to be the continuation of the dynasty. And David, on the other side, is a threat to that dynasty. And yet Jonathan doesn't see David as a threat. He sees him as someone deserving of honor. I think a lot of us see people external to us as a threat. Right? We might think our, our coworkers aren't teammates. Sure, we might work for the same company, but, but they're actually rivals. Right? They're rivals for the promotion or the bonus. And so we try to one-up each other. We try to, to put our accomplishments there so that we build ourselves up and we look better in comparison. And we do this because we desire to be honored, and we think we need to do it for ourselves. But when we live as better friends, we can honor others, and we're built up because of it. One of the best pictures of this idea I've heard comes from Stephen Colbert, of the Colbert Report and the Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And he, he said this during a commencement speech he gave at Northwestern University. Uh, he said this, I want you to listen closely, right? I, I think this is really powerful. Uh, after I graduated from here, I moved down to Chicago and did improv. Now, there are very few rules to improvisation, but one of the things I was taught early on is that you are not the most important person in the scene. Everyone else is. And if they're the most important person in the scene, you will naturally pay attention to them and serve them. But the good news is that you're in the scene too. So hopefully to them, you're the most important person, 
and they will serve you. No one is leading. You're all following the follower and serving the servant. You cannot win improv, so no more winning. Instead, try to love others and serve others, and hopefully find those who will love and serve you in return. Okay? Try to love and others and serve others, and hopefully find those who will love and serve you in return. Is that not a picture of a better friend? If each of us could stop focusing on ourselves, trying to find ways to, to build ourselves up, uh, expending our energy to be built up? What if instead we became better friends and built up others? What if we gave of ourselves to others and others gave in turn to us? And because of that, we actually became bigger by giving up ourselves. In our humility, we actually grow because we are honored by others and we honor them. This is the outcome of a life lived in an honor one another relationship. And it's a picture of the life that David and Jonathan have as they seek to be humble, to support and honor one another, and to build each other up. The second characteristic of the better friend. The better friend protects one another. If you remember last week's message, we explored chapter 19 and 20. And uh, we watched as David went from living in the palace to fleeing for his life because of the threats of violence he kept experiencing from Saul. And while I don't want to repeat everything that was said last week, uh, I want to highlight the relationship between Jonathan and David in this narrative, rather than the relationship between Saul and David that we talked about last week. So from the very beginning of chapter 19, we can see this beginning to take place. Uh, 1 Samuel 19 Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about it and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan and his father meet, and Jonathan intercedes for his friend. We, we talked about this last week, right, Jonathan? Dad, David is innocent. He's done so much good for your kingdom. He puts his own life on the line. And once again, it's wrong to murder somebody who's innocent. Right? Saul agrees to not kill David, and Jonathan brings him back into the household. But it's not to last. In verse 10, we read, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night, David made good his escape. In the next chapter, David and Jonathan are again united. And we read at the start of chapter 20, Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I'm supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him. 
David earnestly asked me my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because of an annual sacrifice being made there for his whole clan. If he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. Right? They're reunited. And first things first. David wants to know why Saul is trying to kill him. And in verse 2, Jonathan seems surprised that this is even happening. In fact, at first, he doesn't even seem to believe it. But David vows saying, why would Saul, knowing how close we are, knowing how good of friends we are, tell you of his plan to kill me? But David and Jonathan, they're not going to take this lying down. So instead, they, they hatch a scheme. Now, a scheme sounds negative. They hatch a plan to judge Saul's true intentions towards David. Right? The first day of the, the lunar month is a festival. And so David will not show up to the festival. Jonathan will claim that he has gone home to be with his family. If Saul's okay with this, they'll bring David back. But if he responds in anger, they will know that he is after David. David continues this conversation in, in verse 8. He says, As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? I love this verse for two main reasons. The first is this idea of showing kindness to your servant, or translated other ways, deal kindly with me. There's this picture of covenant fidelity, right? Demonstrate loyalty to me in this relationship because of your covenant. And the other reason I love this verse is because David identifies as Jonathan's servant, right? Even at this point, he's been anointed as king, He's married the king's daughter, and he's been given the royal robes by Jonathan, and yet he continually honors Jonathan. The conversation continues, and we read in verse 12, Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. I love the burden we get here in verses 14 and 15. Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness, and do not ever cut off my family. Right? These are the promises that Jonathan asks of David. Jonathan asked David to show loving kindness. Loving kindness comes from the Hebrew word chesed, so this idea of a loyal love based on the covenant between the two. The same word can be translated as loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, love, mercy. But the other portion of this request is do not cut off your kindness. Do not cut off that same chesed loyalty from my family. This is perhaps an odd request, seeing as up to this point, no family members of Jonathan's have even been mentioned at least sons, his father and sister have been. But, but in the ancient Near East, it was common for the king to kill off his major enemies and rivals when he came into power. It was a way to secure the throne. 
right? But here we see an extension of the covenant that David will not take the lives of Jonathan and his family when he comes into power. Jonathan still living or Jonathan's sons, they would have the bloodline of the throne. They would be the biggest threat to David securing the throne. And leaving them alive might mean that the people of Israel would actually reject David for the line of the king. Right? But David values his friends too much. He vows to protect Jonathan and his family. All right, let's pick up the pace so we can continue through this story. Uh, Jonathan and David make this covenant together, and they make a plan. They also find a way to communicate with one another uh, through arrows. Right? After the feast, when Jonathan has been able to see Saul's reaction uh, to David and discern his intentions, he will go to a field and fire off some arrows. Uh, if he fires them and sends his arrow retriever beyond the arrows, it is not safe for David to return. And if he fires the arrows and sends the boy saying, they're on this, this side of you, then David will know it is safe. And so Jonathan goes to the feast. Uh, and on the second day, Saul asks, where's David? And Jonathan follows the, the ruse they had planned saying, oh, he's gone home for a family feast. And, and Saul becomes enraged. He yells at his son. He calls his son, uh, he says, you are the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. And he ends his, his tirade by playing this final card. He says, you will never have your kingdom while David is alive. All right, Saul thinks that this appeal will work. But Jonathan has already conceded and began to honor David as the future king. And so Jonathan departs and he follows through with the plan to communicate with David. And on the third day, he goes out to the field and he sends his arrows flying. It landed way on the other side of him, meaning that David is to flee. And we read the goodbye in chapter 20, verse 42. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. Go in peace does not mean to go without worry or fear, but rather go in the confidence that God is with you. It isn't a, a tranquil peace, but a, a reassurance. Speaking of this relationship, author B.T. Arnold wrote, the essence of, this, of that relationship between David and Jonathan is a covenant that involves promises of mutual protection. They're committed to looking out for one another. Jonathan will do all he can to protect David, and likewise, David will look after Jonathan. But the whole arrangement depends completely on the covenant relationship with its fierce loyalty. What holds the unit together is the prospects of relational faithfulness. Right, and this is an, another example of the better friend. The better friend is a protector. They look out for each other and for the other's family. Even in times of hardship and difficulty, they seek the best for one another. Jonathan stands up to his father and to political pressure in protecting David. And David will honor that and protect Jonathan and seek to protect his family and descendants to honor the covenant, even if it means that his claim to the throne might be less secure. Right? In the same way, we should seek to be friends who protect others, to look and be aware of the dangers and to be proactive in intervening for our friends. The better friend protects one another. Jonathan and David are finally reunited for a final time in 1 Samuel 23. 
right? From chapter 20 to 23, David has fled from town to town and is continually evading Saul. He's been on the run. But it's here we see the third defining characteristics of David and Jonathan's friendship. The better friend encourages one another. We read this in 1 Samuel 23, 15 to 18. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Do not be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. I love so many things in this passage. Right? Jonathan identifies with David's fear, but still admonishes him. Right? He says, do not be afraid. David again honors David, saying, you will be king over Israel. And I think it'd be easy to look at these lines and say that Jonathan affirms David. He says, I know you're scared, but don't be afraid. Right? This is going to happen. And if we stop there, I think we can get stuck with a very shallow view of encouragement. It's actually in verse 16 that I think we gain a, a deeper understanding of what godly encouragement looks like. Uh, the phrase used in this verse is that Jonathan helped him find his strength in God. Uh, another phrasing is that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. This is not just affirming someone uh, or sharing a compliment. Uh, this goes beyond niceties. Right? Being a, a true encourager means helping someone find their strength in God. And it often means more than sharing a simple platitude or Bible verse, although that, that may be a start. Right? A better friend is someone who knows you, someone who deeply identifies with you and can speak strength to the very core of your being. Right? David has been on the run from Saul, he doesn't know what's next. He's unsure. He's uncertain. And I'm sure that he is filled with fear. And Jonathan comes up. He rebukes the fear in David's life. And he affirms the God-given calling. Right? He affirms the identity of David as the future king. His words strengthen David. They help him find his strength in God. Uh, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book, Life Together, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of a brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. And that also clarifies the goal of all Christian communities. They meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. David needed his friend to speak life and encouragement and God's strength into his life when he was overwhelmed. And each of us has the opportunity to be a better friend and not only speak affirmation, to not only speak encouragement, but to speak God's strength into the people around us. I was thinking about this idea this week, uh, and a, a story I hadn't thought of for a long time came back to me. 
uh, back when I was in youth group, I had been wrestling with my faith. And for whatever reason, whatever was going on in my life, um, at this point in time, I had become convinced that God couldn't love me or God didn't love me. God felt really distant. Uh, I was really struggling to engage with him, and I, I really didn't feel loved. And so I was sitting on a, a staircase up to the side of our youth room uh, following a, a worship service or something we had had, um, and I really didn't know what to do. I kind of was just stuck in these, uh, these thought patterns. And my friend Ryan came, and he sat down, and he started to speak to me about God's love for me. Uh, he read scripture. He encouraged me. And I think in that time, he helped strengthen my soul in a moment of weakness. I don't know where my relationship with God or where my life would be without Ryan coming and speaking life and love into my life at that moment. Right? He strengthened my hand in God at that moment. What's even more, I think, incredible about that, uh, about this story, is that eight, maybe nine years after it happened, uh, I was invited to lead worship at a young adult retreat. And my friend Ryan showed up. And at this point in time, I hadn't seen Ryan in four, maybe five years. Uh, I know Ryan had walked away from church, um, but here he was. He just showed up at this event that I was at. And we're having a prayer time on that retreat, and Ryan came up to me, and I was praying over some people, and he asked for prayer. And he was struggling with his faith. He was struggling with uh, direction. Uh, he was struggling with ideas of where to go. And at that moment, I was able to be a voice of life and encouragement to him. And I was able to speak some of that same strength that he had spoken into my life back into his. Right? The better friend speaks encouragement to one another, but not simple encouragement. The better friend strengthens others' hand in God. So how do we become the better friend? Well, number one, we honor one another above ourselves, and we live lives of humility, seeking to serve those around us. Number two, we protect one another. We keep wary of potential threats and seek to intervene for each other's sake. And number three, we encourage one another, but not a shallow encouragement. As we live and know one another, we speak the life and strength of God to one another to inspire each other to carry on. Let each of us look for ways that we can be the better friend this week.